Hello, yummy mummies. Welcome to Beyond the Bump, a podcast brought to you by Jade Caldwell and Sophie Pierce. This podcast is targeted at mums, mums to be, and women in general. And gents, feel free to have a listen too. It's a place to have real discussions and ask real questions, no matter how hard, with honest and authentic people. The aim is to have you feeling lighter, more supported, and more understood after every listen. Now, we can't promise that it will always be kept PG, so please be mindful around little ears. Here we go. Hello, Jade. Hello, Sophie. Hello, everyone listening to Beyond the Bump. Thank you for joining us. Potty legends. How are you? I am good. How are you? I'm really good, but I think you're lying. No, I actually am good today. I Oh, good. Yeah, I'm going to start off with my lows because that's why you said that. My low of the week, I have been extremely anxious slash feeling a little down. I don't want to say depressed, but it probably is feeling like that. And it came straight out of the blue. I'm not sure why it just happened. And I have been making a really conscious effort to try and stay positive, think of, you know, good things, go for walks, just do everything I can to make my mental health be at its best. And it seems to be helping. But yeah, there was a a few days over the weekend that I was really, really struggling and was quite agitated. And I don't know, it's, it's a strange feeling. I didn't feel like I had enjoyment out of anyone or anything. And yeah, it, it got quite nasty quite fast. So to anyone out there that feels like that or goes through moments like that, I feel you. But, you know, exercise and me just trying to focus on the things that know work for me are getting me through. So that's a a really good thing. My highs are that it was little Mia's or should I say big Mia's birthday. She turned eight over the weekend. And that was actually quite hard when I was feeling like that. And it was a mixture of emotions, but she had an incredible time. She had a little slumber party with her girlfriends. We took them up to bounce. She had two days of action-packed fun, which was awesome. So it was beautiful to celebrate her turning eight. Yumi slept for a whole night in her cot and didn't come into our bed, which was a huge high. I was like, wow, I feel fresh. Maybe that helped as well kids. And um, to top it off, we are off to Tasmania tomorrow to see Dark Mofo. I am so excited. Never been to Tassie. This is going to be coming out on Monday. So I would already have been back by then, but I am so excited to get packed and just have a little time away with my husband. So good. That is an action-packed week. It is. And I guess circling back to, I guess, your low of the week, and I'm so glad that you're feeling somewhat better uh, for anyone who's new around here or, yeah, doesn't know, like you do have a history of postnatal depression and anxiety. And so if there's anyone who feels like they're going through that, we have chatted about that before. And Jade, in so many episodes, you've been really open about the way that you feel. And I feel like you've been 
really good for quite, I mean, you've had some little bits of anxiety here or there, but I feel like you've been really good for quite a while. So do you think that's why it kind of like stopped you in your tracks a bit? Cause you were just like, whoa, that just threw me for six. Yeah, it did. It, it, I think when it start, when I start to realize that it's not just me with certain things, everything starts to be an issue and I can't get out of it. And it's like my mm. headspace. I start to realize, oh, I'm actually, I'm aware of it. I know that it's happening. And then that's where I've learned and I've come a long way since, you know, being frightened and not being able to deal with it. But now I know my signs and I know how to handle them somewhat. And I feel like I can, I guess the way I see it is I have tunneled out of this path before. So I feel like I can always see the light and do it again, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. And I guess the low of my week, and this is not to turn it on to me, but was knowing that you were going through these things. And I feel like, and that's not to make you feel guilty about the way that you're feeling, but I guess it's one of those things. And I think there's a lot of people out there that they're in, in the position where they've got a loved one or a friend or a family member who goes through this. And it's, it's hard to know what to like do or say. And I wanted to know if maybe you had any advice for people out there who have close people in their life that go through these stages. Cause I think I've got one of those personalities where I like to fix things for people. And I remember I was even saying to you, like, you know, what do you think's caused it? What do you think's Mm. this and that? And then I said, oh, you know, like what helps you? And you wrote, back saying not focusing on what possibly had caused it. So I feel like in trying to help, I was potentially doing you a disservice. No. Yeah. Can you speak to that? Yeah. I think that for me, and I can only speak on my personal experiences, but for me, as much as I do like opening up, I like opening up after I've been through the the actual time. It's quite frightening when I'm in it. And I don't like talking about it because I feel like the more I do talk, the more it amplifies those negative connotations and and the way I feel. So I, I absolutely love, like I, I'm only going to be honest with the closest people around me, so I had mm. to let you know and I let my parents and my husband know and my best friend know so they're aware. But I, I love a bit of space and I love to just try and honestly just focus on what makes me happy and what makes me feel good. And for me, it really is exercise, spending time with my children and just staying off social media and trying, not that I actually did much of that on the weekend, but um, yeah, just trying to, you know, balance myself out again. So I'd love to hear anyone else's tips on what they think when they go through times like this as well. And also I know a lot of people have been really feeling anxious of late. I don't know. We love to blame the moon with our children's sleeping patterns and our mental health, but I definitely feel like there is something going on at the moment. So would love to hear anyone's thoughts if they want to, you know, message us. Or I mean, seasonal depression is a real thing. Not that we, it is not that we I know. And I was going to say, not that we're we live in Australia really has the harshest of winters, but you know, we can blame that if we want to. (laughs) Exactly. And what about a high for you? I've actually had a really great week and not to rub that in. No, I love um, this often happens. We often do this that when I feel like I'm in a funk, you are thriving. (laughs) And when you and when it's the other way around. But we're balancing um, each other out. It's perfect. Totally. We can't both be down in the dumps at the same time or nothing. 
nothing will happen. But no, I've had a great week. We had a last minute cancellation at our Airbnb. So we've been staying there and it's been kind of the perfect staycation because it's only about three kilometers from our house. So there's not that pressure when you pack that if you forget something, it's the end of the world because literally we can drive home in less than five minutes. The kids still had daycare. So we're like on holidays, but like the kids have daycare. So it's been really good. Also another massive high is the feedback and the support we've had for last week's episode with Dr. Timmy that was all about inductions. There were so many women out there who felt that, you know, they'd actually had really positive inductions, but there'd almost been so much external stigma and external labeling of their labors as being traumatic when, when they were in it, they never felt that it was traumatic and actually had a really positive experience. But then afterwards, almost were talked into believing that Mm. they'd had a negative experience. And look, I'm not saying that every person out there's had a positive induction, but it's actually been amazing. The amount of people who have come out and said, yes, I didn't feel like there was anything wrong with my labor, but now I feel like it's been put on me that it has been. And, And even in myself, like having had two incredible induced births before, I still sometimes get caught in this way of thinking like, oh, but you know, like I'd really love if and when we have another baby to go into labor spontaneously. And I just feel like I need to reflect on that. And I'm like, is that because I want to experience spontaneous labor or is that because I almost want to wear the label of having gone into spontaneous mm. labor and I, I and I need to work out that it's not the latter because that's ridiculous. I've had two incredible, uncomplicated, induced births. So you don't wear a medal for the certain type of birth you have. So I'm so glad that it's made women who have been induced or potentially have an induction in front of them feel better and more supported and lighter about their experience. So I've loved that. Now, do you have a lowbrow mum hack for us? Okay, I do. Now, this came from a, I posted something this week and I woke up one morning and my husband, I found like a, look, I'm going to say a soup ladle so you can get your head around it if you don't know what a skimmer is. It was like a large slotted spoon. Large, large. Like you would use it to get pasta out of a saucepan let's just say that and we've got a really small sugar pot and it looked when I woke up that my husband had used that to scoop sugar out into his coffee and (laughs) when I asked him why he would use that he said well I'm not going to use my hands am I and I looked at him (laughs) and went for his credit Our our teaspoon drawer is actually outside the pantry. So that is why he said that. He's not actually that bad. But then I woke up today and he had a Pyrex jug that he had wheat bix in and I give up. I honestly give up. I don't know how (laughs) his brain functions, but a lot of women responded in about their partners and the experiences they have of how their partner's brains actually work around the house. It's actually quite mind-blowing. put the fucking ladle slotted spoon thing in the dishwasher. Like wouldn't you be so embarrassed that you'd just use that for your morning sugar that you would hide the evidence? 
evidence. Like, at least if you're going to be so lazy and ridiculous, hide the evidence. But also, I just, I don't even understand why he would use that. Like, I would have happily have just like, one, got a teaspoon out, or two, just like pushed the bit of sugar that I needed out. But he really had to go full force with a a freaking ladle. But anyway. So what's the lowbrow mum making this? Divorce him? Yeah, that was it. (laughs) Everyone divorced. No, this woman, she piped up and she was like, I've got this hack that I do when I'm really tired. I'm in the kitchen. I get one of those and I should have Googled what the name is, but it's like a soup ladle with like prongs on it or, you know, the one that has like a grippy hand. Anyway, she uses that as a massage back scratcher. While she's cooking to give herself some stress relief and I thought that was absolutely brilliant and I'm trying it. Never have pasta at her house because there will for sure be (laughs) some skin cells in it. But I love that you could stand in the kitchen getting a free facial from your dishwasher steam while scratching your back with a pasta ladle thing and you just feel like that's self-care right there. Oh, All right, what about rude or fabulous? What have you got for us? So this one was sent in. So with my third pregnancy at my midwife check, Bub at the time was always measuring five to six weeks ahead. After a few more visits and still measuring more weeks ahead, the midwife decided that we should see an obstetrician just to make sure everything was okay and to find out why. The male obstetrician thoroughly checked everything over and then made me lie down on the bed. With no hesitation or politeness, he started to poke and tap my belly and say, all is good. You just have a tub tub. He didn't just say it once. He continued to press on my belly and repeat it over five times, just saying, see, look, it's just tub tub, tub tub here, tub tub there. <laughs> Is that a At medical first term? I was like, um, can you please stop now? But when I got home and told hubby, he loved it. And for the rest of my pregnancy, baby <laughs> and belly was called tub tub. <laughs> oh, you know what? If you can have light of it and have a sense of humor, I actually think it's quite fabulous. And I hope that it, you weren't sick weeks over because that would have been rude. (laughs) Yeah, that would have been rude on the vagina. But yeah, yeah, look, I think, you know, you have to be a bit more careful about how you speak to pregnant women. And I think as a pregnant woman, you get very over people making comments about the way you look. And it's, I guess, never nice to have your tummy be called tub tub. But I guess if you could turn it into something that you liked and good news that bub was all healthy and yeah, everyone does pregnancy differently. So good on you. Play-Doh gut isn't a term that I like either, but my children absolutely love calling it that. And my husband yesterday, Today, squished my stomach up in a ball and he's like actually we won't even have that conversation um moving <laughs> right along before we get stuck into our fabulous episode for today I wanted to just quickly mention that we have a family friendly fundraiser this Saturday the 26th of June for Simone Thomas and her family and for a bit of background Simone's a local bar and community member and she's a friend to myself and a beautiful mother to her two young children the part I wish wasn't true is that Simone is battling stage four breast cancer since her diagnosis late last year so we need an overwhelming push from the community of love and support as Simone faces enormous costs in fighting for her life with chemotherapy, radiation and holistic therapies and we would love everyone to come along and enjoy a family fun field day. The fundraiser will be at the Bangalore Bowling Club and there'll be jumping castles, games for kids, foods, drinks, live music 
music and over $15,000 in raffle prizes. And I'll pop all the details up this week on our Instagram so you can have all the details and we'll pop there. And in the show notes too. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. we'd love for anyone to come. Oh, we're sending all the love and strength in the world to Simone. That's a <sighs> yeah, truly challenging time for her and her family to be going through. Yeah, absolutely. But I think it'll be a beautiful day for her to be surrounded by so many people that are supporting her and the amount of effort that her friends have gone to to make this all happen. So I'm really looking forward to it. I think it'll be fantastic. Absolutely. And now on a slightly lighter note, yes. this week's episode's a bit different because I would say, you know, the main portion of it, we are actually talking about Botox, which isn't particularly Ooh. conception, birth, pregnancy, postpartum related. But when we touched on it on our stories, there was an overwhelming response from you guys wanting to know more about it. When is it safe? How do you find someone? So in no way, shape or form are we trying to pressure people into having it, saying that people need it, anything like that. You do you always. If you want to wear makeup, wear makeup. If you don't, don't. If you want to get Botox, go for it. If you don't, don't. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this isn't to make any women who maybe are feeling a bit of a funk postpartum make them think that, oh, we think you need to go get Botox. It's not like that at all. We just like our listeners to be informed. And we thought that this chat was extremely informative. And it was extremely timely because the lady that we had on is a RN nurse, cosmetic nurse for Botox. She has a lot of knowledge in the industry, but the main reason we had her on also was to talk about perimenopause. So they are not related. These two things are not related. It just so happens that she has a personal experience of perimenopause and she knows a shitload about Botox. (laughs) We hope you guys enjoy. Hello, Brooke, and welcome to the podcast today. For all our listeners out there, tell us a little bit about yourself and your family and what you do and what got you into Botox. Thanks for having me here, Soph and Jade. It's lovely to come in and have a little bit of chat to you about perimenopause and Botox. I um, trained as a registered nurse. I went to university with a baby around the age of 22. So I've been juggling my career and kids for a very long time. I was 44 (laughs) this year. So yeah. And you don't look a day over and I'm not even going to say it's Botox. (laughs) We'll get to that. Um, Yeah. So I specialized in cardiothoracic intensive care and I was doing a lot of shift work. So moved into education with some post-grad qualifications in that, which took me to a medical equipment company that specialized in cardiology equipment for cath labs, where you go and have stenting when you have blockages. And they also had a really innovative, amazing device part of their company, which was to do with dermatology and aesthetics. So I was covering Australia and New Zealand training on uh, both divisions in that company. And I was headhunted by Allegan, who owned Botox during that time. So I became the business development manager for Botox and that role was an amazing role at a time when, you know, the industry uh, specialty-wise was an absolute craft. So I learned from French, Brazilian and New York reconstructive surgeons and I was responsible for developing anatomical facial assessment skills to be able to do Botox in the Australian market. So 
I never thought I would end up in the cosmetic sector, but I absolutely love it. And and subsequently, you know, I stayed with Allegan and went on to um, launch Juvederm, which is a dermal filler range into Australia as well. So I've been working face-to-face with patients for 14 years with Dr. Craig Late, who's an amazing reconstructive surgeon based at Southport and Ballina and also another clinic in the Hawkesbury Valley, the Beauty Room, which is in Sydney. So I work across three clinics. I've got two children. My eldest daughter is 21 and my youngest daughter is 14. So I've travelled and managed to consult and have a career with the kids, you know, the, the, the whole entire time. So it's been um, quite an adventure. Absolutely. <laughs> and when you walked in, because I've never met you before, the first thing I thought is, yeah, she looks fresh and amazing, but I would never look at you and think, whoa, she's had a lot of Botox done. Like how does someone choose where to go? Like who can do Botox? Can anyone inject it into your face? So when you're choosing where to go, I think most people are generally word of mouth. So in the industry today, we've got quite a lot of unique styles and over-treatment is, you know, an area that we all recognise that's going on. So in terms of, you know, the way that I use product, I generally tend to want to keep my reference points and to keep my skin in a really healthy way. So for me, that means sleeping well, eating well, protecting it from the sun, exercising and using really good skincare as well, which I've always done. My mum was a hairdresser and she was always really fantastic with skincare. So cosmeceutical skincare really helps, which means if you do choose to use Botox, you can really just use a small amount to really polish the skin. Like, a you know, you go and get your teeth polished. Mm. So I've used a combination of both Botox and dermal fillers to maintain my reference points. So, for example, I'm going to be 44 this year. Without dermal filler, my temples are completely sunken in and I look really tired. So that's an area that you can't see when it's been done, but it makes you look less tired. And I absolutely, I love that. So same with, you know, having a history of my lip treatments. I didn't want all little fine lines around my lips. So treating my skin in a way that maintained the appearance of healthy, glowy, hydrated skin. That's been my craft in in my field and generally why people come and see me because Mm. there's a big variety of treatment styles out there and I generally tend to really want to keep people's well-being and their aesthetic aligned to that. So it's not like what have you had done? It's wow, you look really good and that's really, it helps your well-being. So Because I'm really torn. Like I, I've never had it done and I've always been someone who said, you know, like I want to age gracefully, da-da-da-da. I'm only 29 years. I'm 30 years old this year. And especially after having my second child, sometimes I catch myself in the mirror and I'm like, oh, I don't recognise myself. I'm like, oh, she looks really tired, but I'm so torn. So are you saying that like if it's done well, you can age gracefully just by being that little bit fresher. Well, there's a few things that you've brought up there. I really think everybody has this notion of ageing gracefully. So let's just break that down. We're getting our hair done. We're getting spray tans. There's lashes. You know, there's everything going on. I think when it comes to skin and you've got skin changes, and let's look at something, you know, by the end of your 30s, you've got lines across your forehead 
there's a million things designed to treat that that we spend money on, but it actually doesn't work. If you use a low dose of Botox in that area, the skin condition is absolutely amazing. So Australians are the highest per capita users of Botox in the world. And that's not, you know, it's no coincidence. It's because of probably the sun causing Mm. premature sun damage. So when people choose to reverse that, Botox often becomes a solution because it actually changes how the smooth muscle is affected and it really improves the skin texture. So the dose that you use can freeze it or it can polish it. And that is really what you want to look for in, you know, the clinician that you're going for. Are they going to bomb me so I can't move or are they going to use this as a modality that can basically improve my skin texture? So, for example, if you do get frown lines between the eyebrows, which I've seen patients come in their 60s and with a series of treatments over, you know, 18 months to two years using Botox, it's healed and it's repaired because you've put resting as a as a mechanism so that the skin can better produce, you know, collagen and elastin. We'll often put them on vitamin A, some lactic acid and, you know, other topicals to help with that. But Botox is a protein that basically relaxes muscles. It's used for migraine. It's used for blepharospasm. It's used for cervical dystonia. It's used for cerebral palsy. There's probably over 100 medical indications. So when it's used in a cosmetic sense, the look that you're going to get is really about your anatomy and how the clinician treating you interprets that and whether they take a nice soft approach to just buff it or whether you're going into a more obvious style treatment, which we see a lot of today, which is not really my way of interpreting the product. So my psychologist said to me the other week, I've had Botox, and I said, oh, okay, that's pretty random, but you look great. And she said, no, I don't get it for a physical appearance. I actually get it done in my jaw to help me with she grinds her teeth or something to do with anxiety and it stops her from doing that. Have Has anyone come to you for those reasons? Absolutely. So I guess with Botox being a neuromodulator, if you're really stressed, you can overuse your frown and have a lot of lines developing there. With depression, there's actually clinical recommendations for people to have Botox in the frown to open, release and relax. Bruxism or TMJ is where the masseter muscle is constantly being tense. You often will see a dentist to get a plate to Mm. try and protect the teeth from splitting. In most patients with bruxism, you know, using Botox in the masseter muscle will actually alleviate and reduce the amount of tension that causes the grinding. Some TMJ cases need a more complicated uh, approach um, and sometimes even a surgical approach, but using a neuromodulator like Botox into that muscle can completely alleviate those symptoms, but it can also slim the face. So that muscle often gets quite broad and makes the, the face look quite square. So when you treat that muscle, it can actually make you look really slim because you're thinning that muscle down, which makes your cheeks look excellent. So it has <laughs> wow. it has medical I'll and talk to you about that benefits. later on. I'm gonna admit something on air that I actually haven't even told my husband. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a new member to Botox and Brooke is actually this is where I found this little angel. I have had it done I think twice. And I have 
Honestly, I wanted to chat about the fact of the symptoms and the side effects that you can have if you have anxiety and you get Botox. Because I feel that when I got it done, nobody, and I'm not saying you didn't tell me, but I went away because my girlfriend had it done and she was fine. I went away and I was like, the next day, because I was so focused on what's going to happen to me, having something inside me, I felt very panicked by that. And I felt this heaviness. It was a real heaviness in my forehead because that's where I got it done. And I really struggled with the thought of having something in my body. And it took uh, it took about probably 48 hours for me to relax and go, okay, this is what I've done. This is what it's doing. It's okay. And I don't think there has been a lot of conversation about how you can feel once you have had it done. But saying that the second time I did get it done, I didn't have any of those issues. It was so fine because I've had it done before. So I think it's just interesting to know that if you do get something done, just because everyone else isn't talking about the side effects of what may happen, it still can be a pretty big thing. It's a big decision. I'm sorry you were very stressed. I think when people do I'm stressed about everything. I think everyone on here knows that by now. Brooke, that's not your fault. (laughs) I think with, you know, having Botox for the first time, one of the things that, you know, when I was working for Allergan many years ago, The research showed that people would take up to two years before wanting to have it and having, you know, made the decision to go and do it. The key motivator for them was somebody that had done it and who they actually went and saw because Mm. there's a lot of nervous energy and worry about Botox. I think that's even harder today because the stigma that is associated and why we don't perhaps tell Mm -hmm. our partner is because there's such bad examples Mm -hmm. of people looking absolutely ridiculous. (laughs) And that's a particular style of treatment that I am not a fan of and that I think is an overuse of product. If you're having a, a small amount of product to basically help your skin to repair. It's like polishing the car or going and having your your teeth polished. So having a treatment that is focused on that's the limit and the focus of the treatment, you're going to actually have a very minimal impact in terms of when it onsets, what does it look like? Then you've just got to deal with the worry about, I've never done this. Oh my God, what have I done? It's a stigma because I do think that people that are having, you know, Botox and fillers, we're choosing to do that for, you know, well-being. It might improve our aesthetic. It might improve your skin. I mean, for me, I've used the products in those ways and I'm very happy with the effect. And as I've said, you know, Botox Global is used by, you know, more people per capita in Australia than than any other market. I find that so surprising. I feel like it's not talked about that much in Australia and it does have such a stigma, I feel like, in Australia. <laughs> and I think the funniest thing is that, like, you haven't told your husband because you're worried what he'll say about that because he has said he's against it. But if you went and got your teeth whitened, he'd probably be fine with that, but he would probably notice the effect of that. Yet you've gone and got Botox and he hasn't even noticed you've had it done. But the thing is 
when you look at someone who has had, and, and this is what he's going by, he looks at people that have had Botox that have been extreme. So they've got fillers, they've got things in their lips, they've got that. He hasn't seen, like he would look at Brooke and go, you haven't had it. He'd look at me <laughs> and go, you haven't had it. And just so we're all clear, this is the only secret I've ever kept from him that will probably come out soon. But the point that I'm making is, he didn't notice. Yeah. All I look is a little bit fresher. I can still move. I've got movement in my face. And I think that, I mean, the question I wanted to ask you was, how do you know when not, like how not to go too far? Like if I kept coming to you saying, hey, now I want to do this. Hey, I think we should do this. Do you go, well, Jade, this is where we started, this is how you're going, or do you just give your honest opinion? Well, or do you have to have a special friend that holds you yeah. accountable? Do you need or one, all of the above? one Botox frozen face friend? Yes. <laughs> I think it comes down to the craft of the person that you're actually working with. I mean, across the sector we've got specialist environments, which is what I work in, in reconstructive uh, aesthetics. You've also got clinic chains. You've got everything in between. So... Within those environments, there's different philosophies at play. You know, if you're going to see somebody about, look, I've got skin changes, you want to go and see somebody that's ethical, that's highly skilled and really going to look after you and take into consideration, you know, what's going to give you well-being. You know, the skin's the largest organ of the body. You don't just want to be filling it full of injectables when you might be having a laser, you might be having, you know, needling, you might need some skincare that you haven't considered. It's not always just about injectables, you know, looking after your skin in the context of the harsh environment that we live in in Australia protecting it from the sun. There's lots of steps that, you know, you can make to improve your skin. And appearance and, and the, the care that we take with our appearance, it's linked to our well-being and skin is a big part of that. So, you know, the industry is a, is a booming industry and um, a high-growth industry, but across that industry there are various, you know, range of challenges in terms of what advice is being given, what background and specialty, and are there simpler things that you could be doing every day at home that actually make a really big difference if you're not ready to have injectables or you would never have injectables. Mm -hmm. I think the thing is that injectables work really well if they're styled well Absolutely. and you have an indication that you actually need it. We've got this trend going on where everything's about, you know, upgrading and beautifying. But look, when I, you know, travel to different parts of Australia and I see young women that look frozen and their lips are disfigured, I hate being a part of my industry seeing mm. that. I don't think that's an ethical way to be using product and and I think it takes away from the aesthetic and the beauty of, of those gorgeous women. I always say, you know, if the house is, you know, freshly painted, you don't need to to repaint it. Just wait <laughs> so, until so the signs have changed. You know, so, sorry, is that what you believe? Because I know there's the thought out there that you should get in and mm. use Botox almost as a prevention rather than a cure. So is that a myth for people to do it for longer or is that Look, not? I feel when it comes to the discussion around prevention around Botox, I feel really well qualified to have a, a discussion Absolutely. around this because there's been twin studies done where, you know, through the life, the twin one twin had Botox, the other twin didn't. 
the person that received the Botox across their life looked absolutely amazing. So how that's became relevant to young women preventing the development of lines by using neuromodulators like Botox, I think is a very big stretch of clinical evidence-based medicine. If you're in your 20s and you do nothing, nothing is going to happen to your skin except for what you expose it to and what your genetics are in terms of, you know, receiving those, you know, if you get sunburnt or if you don't eat well, you know, your skin's going to basically show up in, in all of those indices. So, if you wait until you start to develop lines in the forehead and then you decide, well, I might use Botox at that time, once that happens, you can repair them. Mm. But if you're doing it 10 years ahead to prevent it, you're really wasting your resource. You know, yeah. you'd be better off to do other things, in my opinion. Mm. And the industry right now has this massive communication that impacts young women mm. and what they're doing with their skin to prevent. And I just don't see that as a really good tool for them and and I think if they don't need it and they're being treated that there's some big ethical issues going Ooh, on there. That's the leather chair, not anyone's <laughs> bum. <laughs> Tends to happen quite a lot on the podcast. Okay, we had some questions that came in so we would love you to answer them for us. Absolutely. Um, one of them was, is Botox safe during pregnancy? So all medications, including neuromodulators like Botox, are not recommended during pregnancy and breastfeeding. I'm sure there's medical conditions where people continue to have their treatments, but in aesthetics, we definitely are, you know, of the uh, belief that you should not do Botox while you're, you're pregnant and breastfeeding. And breastfeeding, because that was the next question. And so that you can't even like pump for 24 hours after having it or I guess it's not known what the Because there was a fair are, few right? questions from breastfeeding yeah. mamas going yeah, like, what, what about? <laughs> What's the loophole? I yeah. want to get around this. If people don't disclose that they're breastfeeding and they've done their breast pumping as a, you know, modality, I have heard of people doing that. I generally tend to sit on the, I don't want to be losing my registration no. for, you know. A um, couple of wrinkles. <laughs> in saying that, at the end of my second pregnancy when I was at the end of breastfeeding, Botox was a definite part of me stopping. My my child was basically didn't want the boob anymore and I was, you know, at the end of breastfeeding and as soon as that phase kicked in, I was straight away, went and had my Botox oh, on I, my crow's feet. And I'm not judging any women I'm who sure are she craving. I'm sure after that, know. but it's I'm in the industry. So in terms of what research is done on mothers breastfeeding and Botox, there is none. It's not ethical. Yeah. So Botox is a protein. It basically is a very safe product and I'm, I'm pretty sure that there's, you know, medical conditions like strabismus and blepharospasm where people do continue their treatments through yeah. that phase. So that's what we know. But I think, you know, as a general rule, it's highly recommended that Slap some you're out. On. All medications are same for, for breastfeeding and pregnancy. And a lot of people, because I think there's a lot of listeners that are just itching postpartum to go have it done if you're not breastfeeding is there any time that you should wait or like postpartum or can you just go on down from birth to your office (laughs) (laughs) I mean look you know 
you would want to just make sure you can get out of the house, right? I mean, yeah. having a newborn baby is, is quite a challenge to get the groceries done, let alone slip in for a little Botox treatment. Oh, that's classic. And what are the differences in Botox, fillers and injectables? So in Australia, there's three neuromodulators in the market, which Botox is one of. Mm-hmm. Dermal fillers are a, a you know, there's different ranges of dermal fillers as well. So the majority are hyaluronic acid, which are dissolvable. And then there's other products that are that are permanent that can't be dissolved. Yeah. So dermal fillers, if they're a hyaluronic acid, have different dosings and different cross-linking, which performs different functions in the in the skin. So some of them can be used to, you know, volumize areas of loss. So say for example, patients that have HIV they can lose a lot of their facial volume and they can use fillers to basically revolumize that. So, or a regular treatment that, you know, a lot of people are interested in is, you know, having their lips done to give them more volume. So Botox is a muscle relaxant and it works by resting the muscle. So if a muscle's really active and it's folding all of the time, basically in that area when you're using a muscle relaxant, you're opening it, you're resting it and you get a, a really beautiful glow because the this skin follicle mm. is basically it's got a smooth muscle wrapped around it. So the area that has has Botox you know, in the skin, it can just smooth out the skin texture. For example, the chin, which is not a on-label indication, but it's an area that we treat a lot because as you get older, the, the appearance of the texture of the chin, it becomes like an orange peel. So you can use a really low-dose neuromodulator to smooth that out, which is, a, you know, a Botox treatment. People can also use fillers through there because if you've shrunk and you've got jowls and yeah. downturn in the corner of the mouth, you you use Botox and dermal fillers in different ways to do different things. And in terms of, of volume, like if I said to you, which I have said to you, I want to look like me, so I don't. I want to be able to like, you know, frown, I want to be able to move my eyebrows, you just sort of monitor the dosage of what will work for me. Is that how it works? Absolutely, and that's basically based on an understanding of anatomy and and watching you move and asking you to do movements and feeling and assessing, you know, your muscle strength and what dose would be able to achieve that. So it's a creative process as well. So understanding the anatomy and then interpreting how you're going to use product is a is a craft. What are you actually looking at to work out where you've got to pop things in to make them stay slick? So the demarcations of the skin and the anatomy, it depends on the area that you're looking at. So, you know, if you're looking at the eye area through to the brow, the abicularis oculi muscle is from the corner of the eye and it heads out towards the ear area. The way that that muscle moves in that area, it's got areas that depress and it's got areas that lift you really need to know the function mm. and and behavior of the muscle in that area if you just go and smack that full of a muscle relaxant basically you can look really sterile and frozen and your warmth <laughs> and your nomadic tone and your communicative sentiment can really drop out so knowing the landmarks and what they are for you it's different for every single patient and similarly where their brow starts at the top of the nose and and it sort of goes around and across to the tail you know there's three to four different muscle groups there you know in between the nose which is involved in the frown you've got the procerus you know at the 
above the brow you've got the corrugator and then it connects with the orbicularis oculi and above that you've got the frontalis. So it's like a jigsaw puzzle. There's all these interconnections going on and every single face is different. That's determined by your genetics. It's determined mm-hmm. by your bone structure and how your skin basically overlays the top of that. So the muscles give little intonations and connection attachments on the skin. So you've basically got to be assessed and, you know, uh, your clinician really works that out. If you're going to a clinician that does the same thing for every single person, you're going to have problems. Yeah. You really want it individualised to your particular facial aesthetic and what you're wanting to achieve. And how far is Sophie off from getting some Botox? <laughs> I was going to say, I'm not going to be offended. I'm not going to say I am going to get it and I'm not going to say I'm never going to get it. I think in my lifetime I will get it. Where would you put it in me? Well, I think the thing is that as a patient, if you're sitting on the fence, I'm definitely not going to treat mm. you. You need to know that there's something that's concerning me and I'd like some advice. Is Botox going to ah, be useful for this? So you have to actually Want have it. already made a decision. Mm. I definitely, in my for consultation, him. if I'm working with people and they actually don't know how they feel and what they want, because it can be such a bit of a stress for them, if it's for fine lines, there's some amazing topicals, there's IPL, there's Dermapen, there's other things that might fit your values mm. and look after you until you think I might want to do that. You may never get to that point mm. and that's totally fine, but I am definitely not going to be trying okay, to convince you. But you can also use it with a combination of all these things. So you can have your good skincare, you can have your, you know, your facials and you can have a little bit of Botox and all of those tie into fabulous skin. Or you could have really Jay, good genetics. Tell me you think that I need to have Botox. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I you don't. Bitch. But neither did I until I hit 30. No, you know what? This is the whole thing. You, nobody needs anything until they personally think that they do, right? Well, look, I think you do need to have conversations with professionals around what other indicators that that might be something that would work for me. So if you come in and you present and you're young and you're fabulous and your skin has absolutely zero blemishes or, you know, lines, it's very difficult as a clinician to say, oh, you could do that Mm. because I don't believe if your skin's fabulous, I don't believe that Botox is I'm going to pretend you're talking about me, but I don't think you actually are. (laughs) I would never say to a patient that's got amazing skin, do it because it's preventative. Mm. If you've got skin changes and you're wanting to correct or manage that, it's going to prevent them from getting worse and it's going to repair them. So the word prevention has really been been sort of, it's been stretched in a way that I would not stretch that in my clinical practice actually I don't see a lot of really young women I think they're Hang tending on. to go to other places I come to you. really young I said all right <laughs> really really young now how long does it last and are some people fast metabolizers and some people slow metabolizers so the dosing it's like looking at petrol tanks in cars barina or four-wheel drive so You've basically you've got (laughs) your duration of effect. It's influenced by the dose that you have, the product that's selected, the muscle unique qualities that that you have. So you've got to basically titrate all of those things. So three to four months is is quite typical. Some people that have like masseter treatments done for grinding. 
they might not have a, a treatment for, you know, six to nine months mm-hmm. because for different indications, mm. if you're using a big dose to really, you know, manage that, it can actually last for longer. In your forehead, if you're using a really high dose to get it to last longer, you might collapse your brow. So you've got all of these variables that are going to be interplaying that and you when need it, to consider. when it wears off, it goes 100% back to what it was before. Well, I think it's really interesting. When I work with patients, I often take images of their skin before they start. And it could be several years down the track. And I'll often get the photos up and show them what they look like before. You know, usually my patients are coming in because they've got skin changes, Mm. not because they haven't. It's often in better condition, but I think it depends on what stage of life that you're at. So I'm in my 40s now. If I let my forehead completely wear off, you know, my photos from in my 20s, I had deep lines through there. At rest now, I've, you know, managed to manage that by using products like Botox to soften it. But I'm also really good with skincare mm. and um, I use lactic acid and some vitamin A and niacinamide on my skin and it's excellent. So I haven't been heavily dependent on, on Botox. Mm. But if I stopped, I would have all of my, you know, activity back. And you get used to not having that. So I want movement and activity. So I treat so that I maintain that. So if I ever decide I can't be bothered to do this anymore, it's not such a big change in my in my skin. Yeah, because yeah, no one listening can see you right now. But eyebrows are moving while you're talking. <laughs> Her eyebrows are moving. And she's smiling, got smile, and lines. Got smile lines. And then when like, she stops, she's looking fresh AF. Yeah, she's smooth as. I mean, I've used the product because I want my skin to glow. I haven't used it because I want to eradicate. Yeah. I I mean, I want warmth. Non-verbal communication is where all the communicative sentiment's going on. So I like to keep that. And that's to me is a really important, you know, people can recognise what you're going on about and and you can connect. So if you're using so much product that you're sterile and you can't move, it defeats the whole purpose of, you know, what's beautiful. I mean, there is that aspect clearly in the industry, but it's not the way I tend to uh, interpret the use of the product. And are there any long-term side effects? Long-term side effects, you'll love it. <laughs> That's the long-term side effects. <laughs> I guess um, one of the discussions is whether or not you can develop becoming a non-responder to the product. So mm. if the product is used in a way where you develop antibodies, it's so rare. Everyone talks about it. So you completely you wouldn't respond at all to the product. So that is something that can happen from prolonged high dose overuse of product, but generally you'd see that in the medical conditions, not in aesthetics. Yeah, because some people asked if you did start, say, in your early 20s as a preventative measure, if then when you reached an age where you maybe actually had wrinkles, would it still have an effect? And for the majority of the population, it would. Look, I think that is a really great reason not to start the treatment until you've actually got an indication where your skin has changes that's needed because the truth is we don't know. There's safety data on Botox for medical conditions that is proven its safety and its effectiveness. But the truth is we actually don't have data that goes from if you start before you've got a problem and it's to prevent, which I think is completely unethical, yeah, yeah, you could run into problems. You know, 
your interval between treatment is really the key influence on how long you should space your product out. So a minimum of three months, yeah. you know, is, is really important. If you're doing one area constantly quicker than that, that could influence you yeah. being a non-responder in the future. And people want to know how much it costs. It actually varies. So with the different products that are in the market, the, the what you're paying for is is the product, you know, the time and the expertise of the clinician. So if you were having, you know, your forehead done, for example, it could be like for something like four units of product, it could be like, you know, around $68. It just depends on how much product you need. You know, if you're having your frown, the standard dose across the industry is up to 20 units of Botox. Other products, you need sort of, you know, more product than that. So the doses are not interchangeable in terms of you working out your budget. You might be up to about sort of 300 for something like that, but you might have half of that amount because you've got really small muscles. So you really need to, you know, go and sit with a clinician and basically get a quote to sort Mm. of work out what product they're using, what sort of dosing are they talking about and and whether or not that feels right for you. And And is it not an area that you should be looking for a bargain? Look, (laughs) probably not if it's your face. I think when it comes to like getting your hair done, you're not thinking I'm going to get a bargain. I think when it comes to facial aesthetics, basically you want somebody that can interpret your well-being and anatomy and style it with as minimal product as possible with a really beautiful effect. So if you're getting something done that you don't need done, that's not a good economic choice. If you're getting something styled that, you know, is really in harmony with treating a, a problem, that's a good investment. So the clinician, I think, makes a really big influence on the style of treatment that you're having, the product selection and and how creatively that's done to sort of meet your needs. And basically, if you've got a budget, you just work to it. So you want to have somebody that can appreciate that and place the product so you're getting the best result possible because where you put that product in terms of where that muscle belly is inserted and where it's attached if you know your anatomy, you can actually be much more creative with what you're doing with the product. So it gives you more scope to to do little things and, and actually to have it have work really well. Yeah. yeah. Someone actually said that they get Botox in their armpits to reduce sweat. So basically when you're using Botox, it works on a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine. So the syntax and cleft that acetylcholine travels through is blocked and inhibited by the protein of Botox. So acetylcholine signals all smooth muscle to move and it also signals the sweat gland to produce sweat. So it's used for what we call hyperhidrosis and that is an approved indication in the axilla, which is the underarm. Generally it takes around 100 units of Botox and it is extremely effective at managing to a normal level. So you might still produce a normal level of sweat during the course of that treatment. When it onsets, it may completely stop. But you just basically, people that have got hyperhidrosis are changing their shirts four times a day. It can affect their hands. It can affect their feet. Some people actually have surgery where they have the nerve cut to stop the production of sweat because it's so Mm. severe. So it's really a very serious condition for many people and yeah Botox is very effective at being part of the management. Last question on Botox and then we'll move on to your experience with perimenopause. Mm. Does it hurt? 
Can you answer this one, Jake? I sure can. I sure can. <laughs> um, I'm an expert. Gosh, I'm a very big expert. So I've had it done twice. Brooke used a cold icy pole with a, is it a condom or a? A glove, darling. A glove. <laughs> okay. So Wait, no, I was asking you about the Botox. Oh, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, Not so asking about you can two I, in your can spare I just, time. Can I just make a comment and see if this suits you, Jade? Absolutely. So, the things that affect whether or not you're going to have a high sensation, as a clinician, there's things that we can do. The size of the needle that the product is injected with influences how much sensory input you have. So we use really small needles so it's really comfortable. And the the way that you use your hands, like the gentleness with which you put the needle into mm. the skin helps with comfort. With, you know, your sensory nerves around sensation, Pain and temperature run mm. on the same nerve. So I use ice before I inject to numb the area, which improves people's comfort. So most patients are petrified. They think it's going to really hurt. They have the treatment done and they're like, that wasn't so bad. You have sensation definitely. But, you know, it's the nerves and the stress of worrying about, you know, what it's going to look like. Am I okay? Should I tell my friends? There's a whole lot of other things sort of feeding into that. If you're doing work around the lip area with a dermal filler, I'll actually use a, a formulated numbing cream to help with that comfort because it's so highly innovated. Mm. You know, the surface of nerve terminals that sense pain in that erogenous zone is through the roof. So if you have product put into to your neck to help with, you know, the condition and the, and the neck texture, you can barely feel it. So there's different zones depending on, you know, where you're treating that are more sensitive, but there's ways that the clinician can improve your comfort so Amazing. interesting well i'll take that one home with me and yeah. have, a think about it. have a listen to the podcast again and see how you feel so let's move on to your experience of perimenopause can you tell us a little bit about that I think, you know, this is a personal experience for me and my personal belief is that when our hormones start to go through, you know, regulatory changes, I just think they're abandoning us actually and it makes us um, less agreeable to the societal contracts that we have been groomed as women to fulfil, which is an innate pleasing, looking after children and providing around those issues. So basically we're less adaptable and, and compliant when we start to go through perimenopause. Physical symptoms of that for me have really largely been around fatigue and how to continue to have, you know, a really thriving lifestyle when you're feeling fatigue. Definitely a big increase in premenstrual tension. And I think, you know, the interplay of progesterone and estrogen, you know, before we bleed and that part of our hormonal cycle, when we're in our reproductive years, that, that cycle's going continuously in pretty quick fluctuations. So, by the time I was 38, I started to have perimenopausal symptoms where there were changes in the length of my cycle. So I particularly found in the luteal phase, which is before you bleed, that I was having prolonged phases where my left and my right brain was communicating with each other in a way that I found really stressful and I had increased palpitations, anxiety that I'd never experienced 
and fatigue and I was really not able to sort of identify what to do about that. I think it was precipitated by a lot of stress and change. I, you know, um, left my marriage and have very good amicable terms around that, but it's still a huge upheaval. So I really needed to identify with perimenopause, like how to maintain my well-being. So, how did you know that you were in perimenopause? Hang on, let's go back. What actually is perimenopause? So I think the medical definition is when the ovaries are making less estrogen. So you start to have imbalances between, you know, estrogen and progesterone and that can affect your cycle. I've had imbalances my whole life. Like I can't take a pill, a contraceptive pill, anything because I just go absolutely absolutely ballistic. So how do you know when you're in perimenopause? I don't think there's actually a test that determines this. I think, you know, worsening premenstrual syndrome, which is anxiety, fatigue, breast tenderness, hot flushes, period cycle changes, mood swings, having trouble sleeping, There's a range of symptoms which are very much happen when there's hormonal changes. And for some of us, you know, they we have these conditions right through our cycle from the time we start bleeding. PMS, premenstrual tension, you know, is difficult for a lot of women. We all just get on with it though. I think for me, by the time these symptoms had exacerbated, I actually couldn't manage it just by my lifestyle. And what age were you when you started to realize you were in well? You know, the anxiety and the the fatigue and premenstrual tension all just was flooding and it started around the age of 38. So Cause I, I guess that would be considered it. pretty early, right? It is, but I took it in the context of, you know, my mum and her sisters and what were their patterns and, yeah. um, you know, sharing with other women, symptoms start early. You're still getting your period. You can still fall pregnant, but you've got a heightened sensory somatic sensing going on. For me, it's like my hearing would be hypersensitive in my premenstrual phase. I'd be really sensitive to noise and I'm a very noisy person. It was quite ironic (laughs) that I would be experiencing that. So I became more ambiverted. You know, my extroverted, you know, lifestyle basically needed to go through a shift and I needed to basically nurture and do more introverted self-nurturing, which has been a big part of well-being and, and getting to manage those symptoms. I also decided after working really hard at it for a couple of years and not getting any management over the anxiety to use medication. And that was, you know, in consultation with a a medical professional, which I did for two years and then came off that medication and I haven't had that symptom again. And the types of medications that are used, were they hormonal for you or were they more similar to things that someone going through anxiety, depression, that kind of thing would take? Well, I've actually done a variety of things. So melatonin was something that was really important to add into my sleep routine because I was sometimes sleeping for like 12 hours with the fatigue and not waking up with quality sleep. Mm. So my sleep hygiene needed to improve. I think because I had a lot of stress happening in my life and I wasn't able to process it, I needed to basically think about ways that when I was asleep and I was having stressful things happen while I was asleep, which prevented me from getting deep sleep, melatonin coupled really well with that. Mm. And I 
I actually used an SSRI because Mm -hmm. the one that I chose to use uh, was Zoloft, which is indicated for anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress and premenstrual tension Mm -hmm. syndrome. So a lot of my symptoms were around premenstrual tension, but the anxiety ended up being a huge thing and I'd never experienced anxiety. So I was just completely out of my depth and, and it was a million out of 10 every day. So when I would wake up in the morning, it was like going through the stratosphere. My nervous system was completely cooked. And why do you think this isn't spoken about much? Do you think, because I wouldn't even say that you're a generation older than us. It's almost 44 in August. So so it's like a a half generation. (laughs) Like, do you think it's that maybe women of your age are not as as open about these things or Mm. you weren't given as much space to talk about these things? Because I know that even my mum, who's older than you, sees what we're so open about with pregnancy, birth, anything to do with, you know, life. life. And she's just like, oh, when I was a new mum, these things were just never spoken about. I mean, society's shifted a lot and I think, you know, the opportunities between our different generations you know, I think there's a real stigma with mental health. And when you're having these things happen to you, you know that it's happening to you, but you don't necessarily have the support in place. For me, I'd had a very active lifestyle in my career, kids, family, you know, relational changes that were a big upheaval that I needed to adjust and and adapt to and also be a caretaker for the family. So I guess in a lot of ways there was... a disassociative part of my relating that I wasn't able to be vulnerable. The the actual space in my life with my inner support was very much geared towards me, you know, being the, rock. being the way that, you know, I had been. And when I sort of started to identify, oh, that's happening and that's happening, I live away from my family. So, you know, that innate women network are in the outback and they're incredibly resilient women. So I was feeling that my resilience had abandoned me and I was really curious about, you know, what to do about that. And because I was 38 when it started to happen, you know, a lot of my peers and friends that were of that age group weren't going through Mm. it. I had an amazing, remarkable girlfriend that was living in Europe and she's a decade older than me and we used to talk all the time and she's like, honey, I think you actually need some medication. You've got this, this, that and that. And it just took one person for me to actually recognize that they were sensing what was going on. But this is why it's so important to have these conversations. I mean, this whole journey and understanding, like I feel like even partners need to be aware and and be a little bit more sympathetic to the fact that we are going through so much internally that no one on the outside has any idea. So if we're a little bit educated, even women to women, hopefully there can be more understanding and more support for everybody. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, identifying with the hot flushes, that's when I actually started to twig something's really going on. I was at a friend's place. We were all having a lunch and I had a hot flush and it was extreme. And I took myself fully clothed and went and got in the shower and just turned (laughs) the shower on to cool down. When that happened, I'm like, something is actually going <laughs> yeah. on, you know. And this is me, not a bad mood. You know, you those hot say. flushes are very irregular, but when they happen, they're really intense. And I can also have them when I'm waking up 
and going to sleep. So the symptoms vary all the time. And And sleep as well, though, like you were saying, like mum, I think she's up at like probably 1 a.m. and she listens to podcasts and she does these random things because her body clock, she just, she's up, she can't go back to sleep. And I'm and like, this is so unfair because I'm like, you finally have kids that are old enough yeah. to have either, either left the home or sleep soundly through the night and then your body fucks you over by waking <laughs> you up when you would have been getting up to the bloody toddler or baby in the first place. As I said earlier, you know, sleep hygiene is one yeah. of the things that I have had to really focus on in my life for my well-being to be maintained, mm. to be able to work, to be able to, you know, achieve mm. everything. And I mean, I'm in a blended family situation. So my youngest daughter, who's now 14, spends half the time with her dad and, and his partner. And my eldest daughter's 21. She's very, you know, independent living. So I um, definitely can relate to that sense of how good it is to have capacity and space for nourishing sleep. For me, I think, you know, in women's lives, we have so much stress internally and externally and you get to burnout and whether that's an adrenal fatigue or it's a compassion fatigue, for me, all of these symptoms were just like a donkey putting their legs out and going, mm. I just can't do all of this anymore. So I sort of welcomed all those symptoms and, and, and I thought I just need to make this a priority. I need to bring more presence into my life so that I can calm the farm. For me, with the mood alteration, you know, we can co-regulate up where we're like completely all over the shop or we can co-regulate down and that's more where you basically you just go into a frozen state where you're just not acting at all. So for me, I can sense into either of those states but I'm pretty good at doing all of the things that I need to sort of stay in the middle but you know, when the um, symptoms of anxiety were so extreme, I definitely coupled it with medication. Mm. There was a lot of stress going on in my life, which was really triggering that. So it probably onset perimenopause a little bit earlier. But officially, you're in perimenopause until you hit menopause. Mm. And that's one year without having a period. So it can be 10 years, it can be one year, it can be four months. So perimenopause is is a life stage that is actually not well defined totally and you're six years in now so where where are you at with it yeah where are your periods at so I have about a five-week cycle at the moment so what that means for me is as I mentioned earlier the luteal phase of my cycle Mm -hmm. before I bleed is a really rough phase for me because it just goes for so long so I have worked with a, you know, a female GP, Dr. Jane Raphael. His, I've actually never thought about that, of course. She's incredible. And I went and just debriefed with her because I hadn't actually gone and spoke to someone specifically about perimenopause. And I thought it's time. It took me three months to get in, but I had a great conversation with her and she suggested to use a bioidentical progesterone 10 to 12 days in my cycle yep. before I was due to bleed. It helps with sleep quality and it really helps with fatigue. So I guess the estrogen changes and the Mm. imbalances is matched. I don't really understand it all, but I've just started to give that a go. And I found that when I woke up in the morning during that phase, I wasn't going through the stratosphere of my nervous system just being all over the shop. It actually was really like, oh, wow, this is amazing. But think about it. Like we've got our period that usually comes every 28 days or whatever your cycle is. And if you push that out five weeks, six weeks, seven weeks, 
there is some serious shit going on internally. Like usually for me, when I have a period, it's like a release. My hormones release. I go, oh, yes, I get cramping and whatever. But after that, I feel good. So I can't even imagine being perimenopausal and prolonging my period to X amount of weeks until I get one and what state my mind would be. One of the big tools for me to sort of be able to track all of that in terms of like how is it affecting my mood, how is it affecting my energy, how is it affecting my vulnerability and just my energy levels was to use, a you know, an app on the phone that started to actually track it. And then some of the apps that are available, they really go into mindfulness, your energy levels, what foods, what exercise, mm. what type of love style. It broke down my thinking patterns, you know, when I'm going to be full of ideas and when I'm going to be absolutely my most vulnerable and really, you know, struggling to make decisions. So once I'd sort of been able to map that out and I could sense those things because I think for me I've just become more sensitive. I've probably always been a sensitive person with perception and how we sense through the world, but I just was such a, you know, an extroverted person that I sort of got through it mm. really well. But the last couple of years, migraines happening premenstrually were affecting me for weeks and weeks. And I just was like, I need to get on top of this. So I went to my local herbal remedy to look at what remedies they've got for that premenstrual uh, relief. Yeah. In, in, because that's just, you know, you can't work, you can't do a hell of a lot of things when you're suffering from migraines that's related to those hormones. So there's some incredibly good products on the market that are over the counter that really help to support managing that as well. So I've really needed to look quite holistically and at my lifestyle as well to make sure that there's enough rest and that the sleep quality is good you say no to a lot more. You're not just going, yes, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. I spend a lot more time in my introverted space, reading, hanging out. I like to play music. I like to dance. There's a lot more activities that are really, you know, supporting my body and just giving me well-being. Mm. So then I can sort of be really active with work and put a lot of energy in and, and still have that balance to want to come home and make nourishing food and, and talk to my kids. <laughs> have you found it's had an effect on your libido? Look, I'm single and I've been single for two and a half years and I think Probably, you know, the way that I relate to myself in terms of intimacy now and, and having had, a, you know, a marriage that had a great connection in that yeah. way, I still have a libido, definitely, yeah. but I'm not sharing that and exploring that. I'm using that energy to really do more inquiry about what I want to create if yeah. I'm going to be in a relationship where that's being shared. It's terrifying the thought of dating and you know maybe using online apps to connect with people I haven't been brave enough to do that and I don't think that I'm sort of ready yet but my friends my girlfriends that you know the male companions in my life that are my really good mates intimacy doesn't have to be a sexual thing mm. you know I have a great libido but I use that productively in other parts of my life I'm um Still sort of working my way through all the lessons of unmarrying and, you know, relating is such a, an important and beautiful part of life. And I think 
I'm just going to keep taking some more time for myself. I really don't want to jump into something that is a sexual outlet that doesn't have the depth of connection that I'm looking for. And I'm quite happy to enjoy, you know, my lifestyle without that at the moment. Absolutely. No, that's a fabulous answer. That's yes, incredible. It is. Well, it's a hard answer because yeah. you still, you know, you still go through phases in your cycle, you know, where you really have a, a strong, you know, desire for that. So you just learn to get better at sorting like yourself me, out. At the moment. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> I've been watching Outlander and I'm when the borders open, I'm moving to Scotland. But that's a whole different episode. <laughs> you can't watch it while ovulating. You're like, this is just way too no, much. No, 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 no. Oh, you know, I think too when I was younger and, and probably a bit more experimental and open to to meeting people, I think when you're going through perimenopause, like what you want and what you choose, if there's gaps in that, like you're working on aligning that. So You've just got to be better at soothing yourself and and getting hugs from friends. Yeah, <laughs> in terms of connection. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I said it. Not somatic <laughs> sensing and actually, you know, how you connect and and the tools that we've got available to us as single women. I mean, it's running yourself a bath, listening to music, totally. getting a massage. Like, there's all this focus on like what can happen with a vibrator. I mean, your body is a full sensory tool. You yeah. Know? There's lots of ways to really enjoy. Satisfy yourself. Yeah. Not that direct. Absolutely. Yeah. And, I mean, for me, intimacy is about relating and communicating and connecting and having that happening with friends and, you know, men that are friends and girlfriends, that's actually what's really filling my cup mm. and keeping me really open. I mean, I just collapsed after relational, you know, changes in a marriage and going through changes with that. It's not an easy process to go through and you're doing a lot of introspection. And I think for me, perimenopause has really just turned the heat up on that and it's made me more accountable to myself. And as a parent and a mother, focusing on the kids and keeping them really grounded so that their relational family is communicating really well mm. has just been really important to me and you've got to just focus on things that work and keep moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And if a loved one was going through perimenopause, do you have any tips that you could give for those to support them? Look, I think you know, having a landmark conversation around what's going on in your nervous system because you're in fight or flight a lot of the time or freeze. And I don't think we have a good understanding that of that. One of the books that I've been reading um, recently is called What Happened to You? And it's Conversations on Trauma, Resilience and Healing. And it's by Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey. It's absolutely the most beautiful read on our nervous systems and just what happens when you've had a lot of adversity in life, whether that's from early childhood or whether it's just from having a big life. So having conversation around that and realising that, oh, this is a response because of I think doing reflective practice and learning about that is a big, big help Mm. and having conversations around that because you're just confused. You don't know what's going on. And for me, my nervous system, I have sensed that really quite strongly and perimenopause really just added to all of that. And I'd never had a conversation or even read anything about any of those symptoms. And I think you've also just got to use your humour and laugh about it and, and make sure you're surrounding yourself with people that don't take it too seriously as, as well as 
doing what you need to support yourself. Don't just think I'm going to suck this up and I'm going to get through it. If I continued to sort of do nothing, like my mental health would have deteriorated significantly. Mm. I really needed to take action to get on top of that early. I mean, I've got other peers that have actually had... um, They've gone through, you know, massive changes and and had the removal of their ovaries as a part of trying to manage their symptoms and gone on to full on, you know, surgical conditions as as a part of their management. I'm glad I haven't had to do that. Mm. But, um, yeah, it's I think, you know, reading material if you know that your sensing is getting triggered and you're you know starting to go through stuff I think there's some really beautiful literature out there but exercise sleep well don't be afraid to use you know herbs and really look at your cycle Mm. make sure you've actually mapped it out using an app that is available to you it really helps you to start being able to you know I've just used I've just started using a app as well and it is good to know because when I get certain like physical or emotional symptoms symptoms I actually now go to my app and go oh well you're just being crazy mad because it's this time of year month so it's not actually normal you it's actually what it is and I I feel those fluctuations too like I can get palpitations at different times in my cycle so you know when I'm ovulating like there's all different things that start to happen and once you map it out you're like oh that's what's going on I mean we're the creators of the universe we make babies this is what we do this is what happens so you know it's good to track all of that and then you're not just thinking I'm a total nutbag well Brooke This has been an absolute treat. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to us and answering our questions about Botox and perimenopause. You've been an absolute delight and we really appreciate it. Lovely to meet you girls and thanks for the chat. I never thought I'd be having those two conversations at the same time. And they are separate, I (laughs) repeat. we want to reiterate there's no reason, other reason (laughs) other than Brooke's experience and her profession that these two are together. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Bump. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and give us a review. If you didn't, good on you. You can also follow us on Instagram at beyondthebump.podcast to stay up to date on behind the scenes and future episodes. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.